Episode 5, Warhorse Podcast. Welcome. Tonight we are going to deal with uh, a series of riffs. Hoffman, Robert S. DeRope. We're going to weave back to female fecundity, portals, yoga, And uh, I'm going to patch it all together with um, one story we've alluded to and another that I have not. So we'll open with the one that I have not. This was a short story that I wrote quite a while ago. I always liked it. I think it was published in some small, like, online pulpy, pulpy sort of uh, outlet venue. And uh, I can't remember if they yanked it because I told them they couldn't edit it. It's kind of standard, you know. Like, I'm going to write this fucking thing, let you publish it, not get paid. And then you think that you're going to edit it? No. Just pull it off your shitty website. So anyway, you know, that's how, that's, that partly explains how we all arrived here, as I'm sure you figured out. Uh, but... That's for the best. Trust me. In this short story, I have a character, big old forearms, like a lobster. And um, he's in jail. A local news lady is brought in to speak with him because he says he'll only talk to her. He's accused of killing a couple good old boys in town. I think it was set in Florida. Probably where I wrote it or had the idea. And he just admits to it, you know, and, sh- and um, he's, you know, a bit of a Lenny type guy, but I guess that's not right. Lenny was just dumb from Mice and Men. He's not your typical, um, you know, guy who would beat somebody to death on the side of the road with a tire iron, let's say. He's, he's a special version of that. And the way that he's special is that, you know, she tries to pull the story out of him and eventually she gets that. He saw these two old boys hook up a couple of dogs to the back of their truck and uh, take off down the road, running them until they couldn't run, and then just dragging them until they're dead. And so my character meets them back at their house and proceeds to beat the ever-loving life out of them into the astroturf, you know, front yard. 
um, he tells the newscaster lady that the real reason he wanted, you know, he had a message that he, he would like her to take back to the world. Of course, she agrees, and of course, the tension arises in that is she even clued in enough here to to follow this or caring enough or anything, you know, insightful at all. And uh, he tells her that there's a big lie in the world and he's, he's very concerned about the younger generations falling for this lie and as he's, he's found his way through it, he, he hopes to pass this wisdom on. And the lie, she asks, what is it? And he says, the lie is that you can become anything you want. And um, that's not true, you can't. Because as far back as I can remember, what I wanted to do and be rewarded for was hunting down people who were cruel to animals and mercilessly torturing them, extinguishing their life slowly over time with just fucking rage and fury. And um, you can't do that in society. But that's, you know, when you said to follow, when the society told me to follow my heart, that's where my heart led. And my character is, understandably, I think, you know, very upset by this bullshit. I thought it was a good story. Maybe not good enough to, you know, develop into something more. Maybe I'll insert it into something down the line, but. So our next next story I wanted to share with you is about these covens that we ran into in Portland. This was like, uh, I guess, you know, two years ago, so that'd be 20, 2019, or like late 2018, 2019. I was going to a lot of yoga, seven classes, nine classes, pardon me, sometimes 10 a week. And therefore, spending a lot of time around young female, young Portland females. And I had a friend who was a long time, you know, good, good friend of mine. And he worked in a place around a lot of similar, similarly aged grouped women, if you will. And we were talking and somehow it came up and he asked me if I had picked up on the moon aspect or fetish or focus or whatever that was sort of going around, you know. And it did ring a bell. I was like, actually, yeah, there's, you know, in yoga class, 
just as an aside, I mean, oftentimes when you go to a yoga class, there's a minute or two minutes where people are settling in and the instructor, you know, if she's got any depth to her, she, she'll use that time to to set the tone for the class, you know, because she's there and she's going to do the job for an hour and guide her students through this and it's going to actually bring you some peace and some some healing hopefully others of course will piss this away by telling you about their day or whatever and that'll set another kind of tone for the class but I had noticed in these you know accumulated these moments had had been used enough times to mention one thing or another about the moon and the cycles of the moon that, that it had struck me as the beginnings of a pattern. And my friend pointed out that from what he could gather, this was a, um, at least, you know, from his angle, more of an intellectual, uh, you know, sort of art girl uh, crowd. Not that they don't do yoga too, but generally they would go to the same places that I was going and but of course, you know, this all is very incestuous and bleeds together. Not literally incestuous, which considering the the locale, I should clarify that. Um, and he had sussed out that this was a type of intent that would, you know, women were planning their months, planning the, the events, the outcomes of their, of their, you know, beginning to an end. Like setting an intention at the beginning of the month to hopefully come to fruition at the end on and, you know, into the next step of their, their presumably takeover plan, you know, one thing or another. A lot of it's just about finding a boyfriend or getting a job, what have you. And um, so we started to notice this, you know, and each compare notes over a couple months. And, you know, I had filled him in on, there's this ancient, um, like, I think it's fairly, fairly well used, the fleur-de-lis. If you flip it up, I think um, the right way. Apparently, the fleur-de-lis is a sort of cloaked symbol of a honeybee. And this refers to, you'll see the fleur-de-lis also used with uh, harems, um, whores, that sort of thing. Um. You know, I mean, today it's just it's just the fleur-de-lis. I mean, maybe it's like vaguely French or associated with New Orleans. Or, but as Hoffman points out, who we're going to jump over to here shortly, the our our ancestors were vastly more um, symbolically literate than we are, and. You know, seeing something like that meant meant things. Whole stories of things could be communicated in a, in one symbol. 
And um, we get a little bit of this, I suppose, with the logos and Apple is pretty, pretty right in your face, right? I mean, is it a taunt? You know, Eve and the apple and the snake? Or is it just a flex? Yeah, remember? She already took the bite, and this is where we're going, and we're the company to do it. I'm not sure. So back to Portland and the witches. Um, long story short is we started to we started to gather you know various symbols because the Florida Lee and the bee thing there was a lot of uh, bee imagery associated at this time with. I don't know, various yoga clothes, objects, honey, of course. This was, I mean, 2019 seems like 10 years ago, considering what we've been through just of late. But eventually, a little interesting side note for you guys. I've always found this, you know, occasionally your friends will just say the most stunning shit, and you realize, you know, why you're friends with them. You're, you're, you'll like be reminded of it. We were talking about the whole, you know, the eyes wide shut um, relative to polyamory, relative to which was, you know, maybe it's in its at its height right now. Polyamory, I mean, but at that time in Portland, like it was spilling out of the gutter and out of the underground into. The West Hills, you know, which is where the, the rich and famous folks live, where everything's $15 million. But, you know, that you were seeing like all of these socioeconomic and uh, normative practices, just, you know, even even normative like cheating, you know. Not good, but it's it's normal. It happens. And that was like dissipating and then being replaced by polyamory of one sort or another. <clears throat> the internet caught up very quickly after this, but we were discussing this, my friend and I, and he pointed out to me that the reason this group of elites uses anonymous sex parties is be is you know because we always wonder well how just to take a few names you know how would um the vanderbilts the asters um the shifts the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, seemingly all, you know, would have their own individual, quote, empires, and maybe they got a loan from, or they loaned each other some money here or there, but it never quite pencils out, and there is a lot of inbreeding, or seemingly, and why would it, why would they hang together? And my friend pointed out, well, that's the point of the anonymous, you know, the the parties depicted in Eyes Wide Shut is that 
if you're, you know, uh, in this club and your wife gets pregnant, you don't have any idea whose kid that is. You, you have a, you let, well, let's rephrase that, right? You know, it's whatever, 25, 50 possibilities and whatever one it is, um, you're going to be responsible for it as is every, the other 49 men because they don't know if it's their kid or not either. Granted, they would have had to have sex with this particular female. Seems like that would be easy enough, uh, you know, to sort out in permutations-wise, right? And, of course, if she's masked as well, you may not even be sure. I mean, you can be... I, I'd feel like you could be somewhat sure, but... Um, I thought that that was such a... This is a guy who's not hugely versed in conspiracy stuff. I had to tell him about the Fleur de Lis, for example. So, carrying on, you know, our investigation continues using various methods that we we cannot divulge now. So it turns out that there are innumerable micro covens all over the city of Portland. Five or six girls getting together on the first of every month to get together to, you know, uh, do invocations, perform workings, bark at the moon, uh, drink, do drugs, have sex, all, all the usual stuff. And then journal about this, somehow, you know, inform the intent with work effort on the physical plane. And, uh, I don't know, I have to admit, you know, I don't know what the t full schedule is, whether they got together like the last of the month and then the next night on the first or took a few days in between or, or quite how that worked. But this, once it dawned on, on both of us that this is what was happening, um, and it had not yet reached this this polyamory level of, you know, there's these local shitty, uh, truly rag-like magazines. Willamette Week is the one in Portland, and The Strangers, the one in uh, Seattle, I believe. They're all owned by the same main uh, umbrella corp, as I recall. And they all serve the same purpose, right? Just to define and control the local culture. So polyamory had well burst that, that level of um, exposure. But the covens had not. And I, they probably have by now. The stuff moves with lightning speed these days. Take a little drink here. Oh, pardon me, thank you. And um, 
you know, from what I can tell, it's it's already in Denver and Seattle, of course, San Francisco, of course, all up and down both coasts. And it, it's it's even morphing, you know, it the ties to the new to the new age thing, the ties to yoga. You know, I never told you to go to yoga class and talk to people or make friends. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's it when you view it for what it is, when you actually see it, and then you hear on some one of these, uh, you know, grifter conservative fucking email uh, blasts that we're we're under attack by witchcraft. It's almost as if they're working for the bad guys again by diverting your attention over to these little girls basically having sleepovers, doing a few naughty things here and there. But are we convinced of their supernatural power? I mean, sweet mother of God, this is the type of... I You know, this is the defense you want to offer? When meanwhile, you've got the Hadron Collider the fuck is that (laughs) Uh, I don't know I guess it's just too big and too far away you know or it's European and these these down home outlets ain't concerned with it so let me get you this quote from um, I told you we were going to riff in this one and so I want to start with this quote from Michael Hoffman from his masterpiece, 2001, published in 2001, titled Secret Societies and Psychological Operations. I'm not sure what page this is, but it's, it's pretty darn early, I think. Since we choose to refuse to genuinely heal the rift between the two sides of our mentality by the tough means of repudiating our lying public persona and taking action on the understanding of our true self, we relinquish autonomy to those who make it appear that they can heal us at great cost or trouble on, their, on our part. Never mind that, quote, they are also the ones who implanted the rift in the first place. The point is, quote, we have little or no power. We cannot act, we cannot invent, we cannot cure. We must wait and see what happens. We must see what capital they make happen. I'm going to return to that one, but I'll continue here. The final nail in the coffin of our free will is the fact that we ourselves know in our heart of hearts that the above is false. That it is we the people who have the power and the responsibility, and that we could crush them tomorrow if we choose to. They are only an illusion, every bit as ephemeral as the patter of a carnival sideshow bunko artist beckoning to us from the other side of the hoochie-coochie tent. (laughs) The man is a master, and... In my opinion, this is one of the most important books published in like the last hundred years or the next hundred years. He, you know, hopefully posthumously, we, ha- we will have this power to recognize what this man achieved. 
um, anyway, take that on board again, okay? So he's saying, we choose to refuse to genuinely heal the rift between the two sides of our mentality. That sounds to me a lot like the emotional and logical, the intuitive and the logos, the, the, the emo and the logo. By repudiating our lying public persona, sounds a little bit like the mask, and taking action on the understanding of our true self. True self, in my opinion, is found through sacred ritual, hierophanies, as Eliade said, communing with God, accepting the multiplicities within yourself. But this part where later down in the paragraph he says, the point of this, you know, the dialectic essentially he's describing is that we've we've come to view that we have no power. We can't act, we can't invent, we can't cure. This is the point. So, in my... Uh, it, would, it would strike me that if you need curing, you're going to have to do that before you invent something. Probably before you take any action. You know, and we could argue this a little bit, but you see my point. Healing the rift is done through getting control over your central nervous system. And what Hoffman is driving at in the whole book is, you know, was later confirmed by, by a black uh, liberal female in a TED talk, like, uh, nine, I don't know, 16, 17 years later, when she's saying, well, oh my, guess what? All this research sort of indicates, you know, we're not sure yet, but it's, it's suggesting that realistically every single person in uh, living in a first world country or who grew up there is traumatized. You're on the scale, you're on the spectrum of PTSD. And there's another quote that I've, I've pulled for this where I'm not sure I'll be able to utilize it in this first hour, but, you know, he talks about psychic driving and he talks about twilight language and these are the tools. It's, it's kind of like... Um, you know, he mentions Ewan Cameron, CIA, psychiatrist, sadist. Um, truly, truly some sick fucks over there. Although I got to say, you know, hooking up the dogs to the sandfly machine was... It's really, it really makes you wonder, like, what else? To, has this been going on the entire... Yeah, it's been going on the entire time. This is what Theodore Kaczynski, who we lovingly refer to on this podcast as Uncle Ted, you know, is pointing out, uh, among many, many others, if you prefer, you know, your, your academic less spicy, you can find others like, uh, 
Oh man, we don't need to go into them. You get the point. And uh, Hoffman makes makes the point about psychic driving and twilight language to illustrate that these are the tools leveraged through media because it just sifts. It just kind of trickles down, you know. If they uh, convince mom and dad, well, fuck, mom and dad will convince the kid. And if they don't, then the school will hammer it in. And if they don't, then his friends will when he, when he reaches the, the right age. Yeah. So healing yourself is a big, big, big deal. As you guys know, I'm not the the inner child guy. I'm not lay down your arms under any circumstances ever guy. Never. Um, I am a guy that appreciates the logic once analyzed, provided through, you know, the logos, proper structure, and... Thus, it strikes me that um, instead of selling, I don't know, how many did we sell guns last year? I want to say it was like another hundred million just in ARs. We went from 300 to 400 something. In any event, let's just take a round number and say we sold a hundred million. What if we had sold... A hundred million guys on turning in the football and the basketball and the hockey jerseys to Goodwill or just burning them. And taking up a daily practice of, um, you pick your poison, prayer, meditation, breath work, a morning walk. Um, um, a practice of gratitude. All of these things and many, many others would heal them. And if they would heal, taking back the will to power would be automatic. But... um, Again, Hoffman is absolutely indispensable in in trying to sort this shit out because the dude's probably just a you know a very unique type of genius. <laughs> so speaking of unique types of geniuses, it seemed high time to introduce listeners of the Warhorse podcast to a fellow that. I ran into pre-internet in, um, I guess through some sort of twist of fate, probably. It's a writer. He was a scientist, um, sort of adventurer, psychedelic research guy, seeker extraordinaire, let's say. Robert S. DeRope. He kind of, he kind of um, I think he was he's British, and he spent a lot of time traveling. Very crunchy, you know, organic 
fellow back when, you know, you, you kind of still had to, it was easy, it wasn't particularly expensive, but, you know, to really go for it in the 60s and even the 70s, um, I think there was some um, some risk to it. It's, you know, more for men, but, um, and there were obvious rewards, but the, to go the distance in anything is worth examining. And, um, I don't, you know, put Mr. DeRope on certainly not the level of pedestal we're talking about with Hoffman and others, but I introduce him to you because <clears throat> this was a time when I was beginning trying to wrap my head around, you know, what was the warrior's way? What what exactly? It'll turn up here or there. And growing up in the 80s, um, perhaps like many of you, the ninja, the samurai, first blood, these things were, they were undeniably influential. And not partic- not always just in the sense like, wow, that'd be so neat, but, you know, to the degree of actually making ninja outfits, per, you know, finding a way to get nunchucks, uh, sneaking around the neighborhood late at night, uh, throwing, you know, descaling, you know, from, from second floor, second story windows and, and such. I mean, man, creating like uh, those cat's claw sort of grappling hooks, throwing them up onto tree limbs and, you know, getting them to work. As a kid, there seemed to me more, more than just, I mean, there was no American myth attached to that. Rambo is clearly, clearly like maybe he's deeply American in the sense like you know he got fucked by his country or something but it's an anti-establishment film especially viewed from the eyes of a child that part's clear the ninja is not a western you know nor samurai and I don't think I'm alone in, in having that sense that there's a there's a there's still to this day you know a sort of missing historical piece you know who was our i guess we had you know as we as we touched on in the last episode we have the mountain man and that's you know a piece of why it's so concerning and upsetting and sort of a crime that you just have a sort of, uh, you know, half cowboy, half um, shit-kicking lawman. Where's the discipline, you know, other than just, well, I got to get up and face this weather every day or my, my, the tedium of my stupid job. Okay. The point we're driving to here with this is... 
in the discipline, the presentation, the mystique, all of these things, you know, the warrior's way as a phrase, as a term, as an, as an actual extant thing in reality, like there's a way to be a warrior. Um, was, you know, something of great curiosity to me at age 19. Well, I'm just starting my life. Maybe this is, you know, sort of like uh, the fantasy chasing a moth in here. Excuse me, got him. Um, is building Batman as presented in that first Christopher Nolan movie, right? Like he pulled, there, there you go. It's in Asia. You just, you're looking for a fight. You find one, you find a bunch of them, and then you find this secret uh, band of, yeah, they end up being evil, but all the mystery is there, dude. All the secret knowledge, all the, all the techniques, the drugs, you know, and I think they even present it as like, it's a righteous mission taken from a certain point of view. not run by the state Christopher Nolan and whoever worked that out I haven't looked into it I haven't even seen the movie but maybe once that was a a tidy piece of work so Robert D. Rope has a book called The Warrior's Way and I found this book probably at Pals on suggestion bought it and was already steeped in the lore of psychedelics, and that was part of his thing. And Robert De Rope, you know, we'll set him aside for a second to continue this Warrior's Way bit thread because that's eventually how I got to Castaneda. And um, there's a few steps in between, but Castaneda is exceptional in in quite a few different ways. However, the main way for me that I would acknowledge him is to say that he avoided, maybe just through luck, maybe he was, he did seem to be a very wily fellow, so he might have well known. But he he might have just been not, you know, not by a giant pussy and and just wasn't going to go along with it. Because there was a like um, diffusing of the concept into like the peaceful warrior and the warrior of um, Shambhala, you know, the rainbow warrior, all these, these neutered, defanged, toothless sort of feminized versions of it. Dastardly just stuff. Dog shit. Back to DeRope. He had a couple other books that I read. One of them I had to acquire through illicit means. um, And I still have in my library. Called The Master Game. And, uh, you know, DeRope was associated with Gurdjieff and Auspensky. These guys who... They seem to have, you know, some legitimate queries. They were of another era um, where you could kind of 
find a, a quasi legitimacy in being a an intellectual and you know a, potentially you were you're working for an intelligence agency but you were also a respected author and on a on a you know sabbatical in tibet and pretty i don't know wide-ranging sorts of we just don't have these sorts of people anymore you know for various reasons but these were these guys uh, the the last two there, you know, Ospensky and Gurdjieff, do seem to have crossed some lines into, I don't know, alchemical demon worship stuff, perhaps. They were never, I checked them out long, long, long ago. I think I read one book of each. Definitely not my bag, you know, it wasn't even first getting into it, I could tell the, the flavor was wrong and I didn't yet understand where the origins of all these things or where they were going, but um, they have a different feel for sure. In uh, DeRope's book, The Master Game, he outlines... I, I, I will find it. I'll dig it out and take a picture and post it for, for Patreon subscribers. The library is in a storage unit, and so it's not the easiest to access. But for you guys, it's worth it. From memory, there were maybe five. But the three that I recall, you know, the Master Game is Peterson's version is the set of all possible games so you don't play you know the doctor game you don't play the uh dad game you don't play the the healthy guy game you know you play the set of games that's going to win you all of those games is is his again very accessible not not totally complete oftentimes, in my opinion. I prefer the rubric of the hunter, warrior, master. Um, personally, DeRope offered up one called the trough game, which is self-evident, self-explanatory. Um, you just make the money, you know, you consume it. You consume the food, the time. You roll over and die. I believe there was one like a sentimental or emotional sort of game, which was a a, a good uh, distinction, I thought. And I, I will dig the others up, but being exposed to that idea from a very learned fellow who'd looked far and wide, you know, he had a a classical education in Europe and then spent like his, his entire life traveling and reading and writing and, but also doing these things, performing science and, um, learning languages, etc. So if I refer you, we riff again 
over to Hoffman. Forgive me, this one doesn't, again, fairly early in the book. Same book. Quote, settlement leads to, he's quoting Mitchell here. Settlement leads to the establishment of social hierarchies, to specialization, the development of arts and the sciences, the building of temples and houses. For millions of years, men, especially the same, essentially, excuse me, the same as we are now, lived without these and presumably without feeling the need for them. Tacitus described in, in a German tribe that lived, excuse me, Tacitus described a German tribe that lived entirely without artificial shelter. Ellipses. The phenomenon of successive towns built around the same sacred place, the spirit of which became the foundation deity, receiving the sacrifices offered in expiation of the crime of settlement and giving the law by which the city was governed. Implicit in this law was a contract between man and God by which the first was permitted a conditional and limited use of land for agriculture and building in return for duties and observances paid to the second. So it was understood by the founding fathers of cities. But as cities expand, these limitations become more onerous and neglected with the result that in the language of Apocalypse, the city becomes Babylon the parasitic horror, and proceeds towards destruction. In this belief, the parenthetical traditional element in ancient Rome objected to expansion beyond the original city boundaries, considering it a breach of the foundational contract. It goes on. And the interesting part here aside from the fact that, you know, this description of this German tribe, entirely without artificial shelter, perfectly connected to the sacred space, and presumably, you know, unwilling to change that relationship. And the second is this. In the language of Apocalypse, the city becomes Babylon, the parasitic whore, and proceeds toward destruction. We've spoken about female fecundity. In von Neumann's description, you have this... You know, by fecundity, we're talking about blood, soil, shit worms, bacteria, the mixture of it all writhing. When we think of Babylon, uh, the other cities on the plain, we're told of um, Peor Baal, the god of open holes. All of this, you know, you imagine that uh, arena, uh, you know, of fecundity and you drop an orgy in there you know we have the reports from the Aztec civilization 
I always imagine like, you know, three or four feet of pooled blood, bodies writhing in there. Sacrifice, sex rituals, not by one or two, but by hundreds of people. This is the sort of terrifying aspect. And, you know, we have arrived, if I will throw in a quick tangent comment here, at a point where, you know, a point of such pathetic degradation that, I mean, even in, even outside of our country, um, you know, Japan is having difficulty getting their men to go out on dates with their women. Uh, we have the phenomenon of the, of the basement dweller and the the neat and the incel. One does wonder if a few of these, you know, there aren't some sense to it. Like, would you rather, are you better off in your mom's basement or out there pooled in, you know, infected feces and blood? Well, fucking case closed and, you know, match set to the super nerd, I guess. But we know, too, from Hoffman's first quote and just by evidence of our observations that most of it is illusion. Most of it is mind control. The demonic is, of course, not to be ignored. In along these lines, this thread of terrifying fecundity, the rise of the urban, mostly urban feminine. James LaFond has pointed out that this is I forget I I should have grabbed that quote. It's rather eloquent. Um to paraphrase, you know, he's saying this is a society that's given over to to its female aspect now and we will we will reap those fruits, those rewards. Excuse me. Even though the weather's nice, having the window open, you you still get parched. If we have, you know, young females in cities across the West and all over the country engaged in their micro covens filing their intent journals on landing the next great position you know in HR to hopefully meet a nice boy or some other delusion and if we have potentially on the horizon some some more great sacrifice. You know, a theme that comes up in 
Hoffman over and over again is that there there is this element of sacrifice among the um, the wicked, whether that's QAnon, uh, you know, and our our boys are down there, you know, in the tunnels and chasing chasing down the bad guys and finding, you know. I don't know. I'm still just stunned by the the this the urgency of that. Um, how fast that narrative came together and was spun up, and whew, how many people you know otherwise that just seem to sort of be spectators on social media all of a sudden. God damn it! You still got to support the troops because not only they're they're not they're, they're they came home. You know they're not in the Middle East. The special operators are not doing that anymore. Right now, they are in tunnels under American cities, chasing down evil, uh, satanic, pedophile human traffickers, you know, uh, presumably making snuff films about kitty raping. Well, if you read King of Dogs, um, I would... would put my money as I have obviously in my mouth and everything else behind my version of it it's you gotta reconfigure a couple of those elements there and I think it's closer to the truth but returning from those little tangents detours back to this thread where we examine the fecundity we've We've talked about various states of females today. We've looked at the female, you know, in literature and iconography as some sort of portal. We've examined the literalness of this, uh, the ancient view of it. We've, we've brought Twin Peaks in and whether David Lynch is pulling this straight up from the the transcendental mind mind field um you know right out of the black lodge as it were or whether it's filtered through a number of readers and and uh the co-producer frost or what have you you have in the bible as well this admonishment for unclean women not to not to partake of church, as I recall. In talking to my Orthodox, you know, priest, very learned uh, man, he pointed out to me that this word that became unclean was actually the real word that it should that should be there is unwhole not whole so it's not that the woman is impure like she's full of disease or something it's that something is happening as implied by the word not whole or unwhole or incomplete in the cycle of menstruation uh, what, what have you
I think that you have here one of these situations where the 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 literary, the artistic representations are much, 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 much closer to reality than the scientific, than the medical. And, of course, the sensitivity of the female body, of, of the female when she's pregnant, leading up to delivery, you know, the, the changes in her, they're well known. They, they, having been through it, you know, around it myself, it's, it's somewhat pronounced, you know, not, not all of them are that dramatic, but some of them are very dramatic. And so when I look at all this stuff or when you look at all this stuff, you know, I'd be curious to know what you guys see. But what I wind up asking myself is, okay, so if women are some type of portal and women are some type of counterpart to man, that that's the natural relationship. Man should have a woman. Woman should have a man. Go forth. If all of this uh, portal aspect is being numbed or otherwise made irrelevant by feminism, by diverted fecundity, their fecundity diverted elsewhere, or um, various obvious perverse techniques of just, you know, like taking the country girl out to the city and, well, she's a lost cause. But more in terms of the mass, you know, the mass just kind of, um, I guess from a female point of view, you know, the kind of the specialness of that was offered in their lives has been so reduced to stupid competition and just one more number and all that, you know, and that, yeah, yeah, fucking red pill guys. I know the women participated. Just shut the fuck up with that. Um, none of that is new. Everybody has known since fucking biblical days. And it's the grifting of that stuff. And the I, I, I noticed, though, that if you just, like, you know, make mute a few accounts, that shit disappears really quick. So I did get some useful stuff from um, Chateau Hartiste. But I think Roosh and his turn toward orthodoxy is about the only good thing to come out of all that. And so returning from yet another detour there to say, to, to, to make this question more poignant perhaps, um, if all that power, that portal power has been diverted, you know, it makes me wonder to what end it was diverted. It wasn't just simply to make less babies. That could have been done any number of ways. And it doesn't answer the spiritual question. It's just simply approaching it from the angle that they want you to approach it from. 
Well, there's resource numbers, and that's what this all comes down to is just, you know, resource numbers and space. Now, we were the ones who, you know, created much of the resource uh, demand, and we do have mechanisms for controlling demand and offsetting demand and every other fucking economic measure. But ultimately, this is just purely economic. I like to... I like to to watch people fall into the spell of oh tools with great explanatory power. It's almost like you just see them disappear under the waves of it and you just see them s- splashing about like children in this this pool of of illusory power. All thoughts of time, you know, all Necessity for coherence, all philosophical, um, you know, basic philosophical presuppositions fall away. And it's just the sheer joy of, of I know the answer. It reminds me of this um, this quote that was posted on my Instagram recently. It's in season three of Twin Peaks. David Lynch is now showing off, as well he should. You know, I, I love every second of it. And he's bringing in Monica Bellucci into the show to describe, you know, him uh, as the character Gordon, you know, from the FBI, having this dream with Monica Bellucci in it. And she's asking, but who is the dreamer? And this is this quintessential question. I may be having deja vu, but I feel like we touched on it before in mentioning um, McCarthy and the final book in the Border Trilogy, Cities on the Plain, that that was the whole, like, last, I don't know if it's 20 or 40 pages, this is what is up for offer. And, of course, even the greatest uh, New Yorker and New York Times critics, straight from Oxford or wherever else, were just unable to to tear this apart yet um some half-ass ranch and you know novelist from oregon um you know and his his half-ass trucker buddy and i can name you five or ten just regular old dudes who could get through it and walk away profoundly altered, you know, uh, in deep gratitude to the sacrifice that McCarthy had to make to, to contain, to hold, you know, to preserve his mind long enough that he could present that to the world, give it back and to stand in awe of the whole accomplishment, which I do the same in a way, you know, in a more detached perhaps, because I'm not a filmmaker. 
but in the same way with David Lynch, um, I have that feeling. And this question of, well, if you're in the dream and, you know, you're talking to somebody, presumably that somebody's also in your mind. Who's filling in the words of that other? Well, you, you know. And this is where the multiplicities get really interesting. And I think where you arrive at, you know, the ultimate paradox of, quote, ultimate reality, dude. I mean, we mentioned before that orthodoxy, you know, states um that we have unique souls and that we also have this direct connection to the world and to me just like with the filioque it's like it's like uh superman you know he came from this ice planet he was delivered here to do this thing okay move on what's next if we want to get hung up on this what what right, you know, or what grounds uh, are you standing on in order to demand that we hold up on this one point when the whole fucking thing is moving forward right now? I think people do it because they just, they don't understand it. And I gotta tell you, I don't think I'm the only one, but some aspect of this, you know, great reset, great unveiling, um, great turning. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that in whatever timeline we take, we can wind this back around to a place where people with sense uh, get to have room to operate and do not have to live their lives hamstrung at every fucking turn by the idiotic and the fearful and you know the psychotic you know the the sort of sociopath who just gains this twisted satisfaction from fucking up your plans jesus have mercy on that note um we're going to pick up with our next quote from Mr. Hoffman. Okay. Here we go. Page 19. And what sort of creature inhabits the modern domain? What is the modern man? The puppet masters say he is the smartest, most advanced individual to ever strut the planet, the most relatively liberated being in history. But Louis Ferdinand Celine said it well, quote, what does the modern public want? It wants to go down on its knees before money and before crap. <laughs> Bingo. The public have been trained to do this by two principal methods. Uh, 
direct speaking, archetypal messages of pure terror, quote, psychic driving, as CIA's Dr. Ewan McCameron termed it. So to rewind, direct, it's, it should almost read like directly speaking, archetypal messages of pure terror. Sounds again somewhat like Batman, right? That first one. I'll finish this and then give you some little background and then move on with the whole quote. But um, encoded in massively publicized lone nut mass murders and the sinister flattery heaped upon them by their masters in the cult of civilization and progress. Pure terror encoded in massively publicized lone. So he's saying, you know, that these archetypal messages are being massively publicized by way of the lone nut mass murders. Included here is the killing of the king, JFK. And and many, many others. And he he cites um, Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper. And simply stated, you know, part of what what's what he's putting forth is that as the terror of something like that ripples out into the community, statements made by about it by your mass media are going to include odd and particular phrases that work on our subconscious, you know, archetypal minds. Um, I do not believe that Hoffman is a believer in the Jungian collective unconscious. However, um, you know, I do think that, again, this is, this is the place to explore, you know, this is sort of our next step in the esoteric survival side of the War Horse podcast. Um, and that is, I'll do, I'll do my best with the speculation, you know, um, and I'll give you some ideas that I've had about how this might work. And I've been working on it for some time. But how would, you know, the multiplicities of yourself, as in the dream, interact with the mul multiplicities of others? Well, um... Without diverting this whole quote, you know, I'll suffice to say that I think there are a variety of other levels of communication available to us. Um, like in dreams, right? I, I don't know how many of my dreams, there's nothing said at all. But it's perfectly 100% clear what's happening. Even if I'm not clear on where I am or why I got here, there's a tone and that tone, you know, we'll leave it at that. That'll be kind of uh, the place to pick up with this. So continuing this quote from page 19. The acid test of a human being's freedom and will to protect the quality of his life lies in a person's attitude toward his oppressor. Yeah. What is modern man's attitude towards Wall Street, the bankers, Dan Rather? He goes on a whole list here. Truman, FDR, Reagan, George Bush, conservative, 
uh, and he includes Exxon and Monsanto. So your corporate, your conservative, your liberal, your media, your bankers. What is the attitude toward his oppressor? We spoke about this in uh, the addendum to the last episode. You know, on the one side, yep, you've got these people down on their knees, like Hoffman says, sucking it up to money and, and bullshit. But on the other side, you've got what appears to me to be like a 16, 17-year-old kid who's never been in a fight, who has no confidence, and who's just operating on pure emotion. So this is why, uh, you know, hopefully this will tie a whole bunch of stuff together. Why are we talking about sobriety? Why are we talking about methodicity? Is that the word? Being methodical. Why talk about, you know, this metaphysical ballast of peace uh, that makes possible war? Because, as in the dream, the tone of a thing is not, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, intangibles or uncertainty or um, atmospherics, you know, tone is right with all of those, but it's, it's also a definable term. I've seen very little, very, very little so far of the tone, uh, the proper tone, you know, and it's almost like, you know, when you see a father who doesn't, he's just an asshole, you know, that's how he, he, um, attempts to keep order in his house just by being a little bitch, basically. What I see is much more like that, kind of a bitchy anger than you would, I mean, even if you're born in like, you know, 1999 or whatever, hell, you've seen some old shows, right? You can at least uh, garner a, a sense of how fathers behaved in the 50s. There's a self-assuredness to it. There's a, almost a, a, a joy at the ridiculousness of the, the fucking retards around me. So finishing up this quote, as one writer has observed, quote, the most amazing thing about the American people is they are constantly defending their worst betrayers. Who then is the modern man? This is Hoffman again. He is a mind-bombed patsy. A mind-bombed patsy who gets his marching orders from twilight language keywords sprinkled throughout his news and current events. If that is not the truth, I don't know what is. How many times have you got to fall for the news cycle and you see your enemy take up the, the, their, their, you know, their script it's a fucking script. 
It's programming. They take up their script and you see your side. Your side. I mean, doesn't... I guess it was maybe the other quote where Hoffman is, you know, doing the same thing, questioning the pronoun or, you know, uh, you, we, is this really, are we really all in this together? We have, we have this ongoing every cycle thing and um, what's the result? Well, man the same thing it's just like a sitcom the fat dumb Raymond shows up you know people clap his uh, smart kind of good looking but thin wife smirks at his buffoonery and he flops down on the couch and says some some dumb thing the audience laughs at how dumb it is she, you know, arches her eyebrow, knowing that she's already got this well in hand. The audience is in on the gag. They know, too, that she's got it well in hand. Well, the audience here, man, is all the people that are not on social media uh, with their beards and their muscles and their whatever else is getting them the likes. And who is the audience going to go with? What is the first rule of guerrilla warfare? You know, counterinsurgency theory, these sorts of things. Honestly, I don't know that it's even a rule, but in my understanding, having read all those books, is that if not the first rule, a fucking crucial piece of it is whatever you do, you got to get the, quote, public on your side. Well, you know, we covered this already, but acting like um, a fool and not even knowing the game ain't going to do it, which is where we got maybe half the problem there. And the other half, who do seem somewhat attuned, you know, think that, that um, making a stink about it or making some threats, maybe you know some of those veiled kind of threats. Like, come on, motherfucker, you want to you want to do you want to go you want to go. It reminds me of the the story that you know can be told as if you're if you're hearing it from a green beret, it'll be he'll be the hero. If you're hearing it from a seal, he'll he'll be the hero. If you're hearing it from a civilian who learned a bunch of shit from those people, you know, I'll tell it from that angle. So, uh, a really, you know, lucky and clued in civilian who got to learn a whole ton of shit from a whole bunch of guys like SEALs and Green Berets and um, Golden Gloves boxers and street fighters and uh, grifters and old survival instructors, and felons, all manner of, of people. And a Green Beret, well, let's just say, you know, 
yeah, fuck it. A Green Beret and a SEAL, you know, I'll walk into the bar. I'm just going to skip the whole stupid joke, you know? There's a potential for the fight in the bar. The three of them ask each other, well, what are you, what are you going to do if you get called out? You know, and the SEAL's going to, well, I'm going to fucking karate chop his throat and then, you know, look at my watch and it'll be 4.32 and I will wake up and then the fight will be over. And the ranger, whatever the other guy is, the Green Beret, well, you know, I'm going to um, call on my buddies and they're going to come in the back door and divert them and then I'm going to cold cock this bitch and grab his wallet and maybe train the rest of the bar, you know, to uh, to take out the rest of their dudes. Something like this. And then, you know, the super, super, super cool guy, you know, what are you going to do? Um, nothing. I'm just going to get up right now and avoid the fight and walk outside and he'll stay in here. And then, uh, maybe in a half hour or so, I'll get out of my car and go grab a rock from the side of the parking lot. And then as everybody files out, I'll stand behind the bar and crush his fucking skull when he walks out the door. You know, I understand the, the joking camaraderie part of it. That's neat. That's not the goddamn point of the joke, though. And the, point's, the point is not that it would be this Green Beret or this, salt, this seal. But that's the level that we continue to have to piss away our time at, you know. But not here. Not on the motherfucking War Horse podcast. The point should be clear. Um, and I hope that these superlative quotes from an absolutely astonishingly good good doesn't even cover it um a true masterpiece in the genre a masterpiece in uh, of nonfiction in general a fact uh in in michael hoffman's once again secret societies and psychological warfare Buy 25 fucking copies. Send them to all your friends for Christmas. They won't read them, but you will support Mr. Hoffman. Or just send him a check. Um, he survived as an independent author for quite some time. With, I think he's got like seven kids. And uh, if, you, if you read that book and you grasp it, you will hopefully grasp what he has achieved. And... Uh, We'll keep going. You know, I'm not... This book is always by my side. I've given away many, many, many copies and I just keep buying them and just keep reading it. And uh, Twilight Language as well is phenomenal. The best book, most probably the only important book to come out this year. Um, it it too, in its way, I mean, it's it's a, it's a true masterpiece as well. He... We've already discussed, you know, the parallels with Twin Peaks, 20 years, etc. So, checking my notes real quick. I'm going to give the, I'm going to give this, uh, the free hour, you know, another flavor. Uh, oh, an hour and 22 minutes. Um, some more some more of our criminal of purpose. You're not going to get the full discussion. I apologize. We're trying to make a living here. 
But, you know, if you're this cheap, you might not even need this tip. And what we're going to discuss is dumpster diving. For the rural man, you know, the main version of this is being the first guy uh, on the deer that just got hit by the dude ahead of you. And that there's some skill in that, right? There's probably more skill in being the guy that hits it, just pull over, take a quick look around, finish the job if you have to, make a few quick cuts if you have to, which would mean you have a knife on you, um, a good one, and you know how to use it, and you know which cuts to make, and if you need to make any at all. To me, if the guts are hanging out, I'm just going to deal with it right there and leave them in the ditch. Um, if there's a giant, you know, like arterial bleed, and I don't have to go somewhere right away, you know, depending on the vehicle as well, if you're throwing it in a car and you don't have a couple of trash bags to wrap around it, and you got the time, you might as well slit both sides of the neck, um, or you can go in the middle to find, you know, the deer equivalent of the vena cava, and you can, there'll probably be a ton of slop in there anyway from just being creamed uh, by a vehicle that, you know, so I don't know, it, it's kind of up to you and, and the vehicle, but there's, if you throw it in the back of a dirty old pickup, fine, deal with it later. Uh, if you need to throw it in, you know, your crossover, it might be a good idea to have some heavy-duty contractor bags always in your car. It's a good thing to... Uh, they always come in handy for, for all kinds of things. That would be a real quick way to handle it as well, not have to make any cuts. Now, for the urban version which in some ways is easier and in other ways is harder. I think the first difficulty for me is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a perception that you have to get over. It's like that guy that I caught in the other podcast just walking in from his station, acting like a bum, getting hand-free handouts to his, I mean, relatively new perfectly clean uh, vehicle parked in the shade and then just going home. Probably made 800 bucks cash. That guy, while it's... I, I, I'm, I do enjoy, you know, some good gray area, I admit. I will, I will get in there and see if I can find some black and white. In that case, you know, he might very well just be preying on, on, you know, otherwise decent people, people looking for that kind of, um, well, I did a good deed today sort of feeling. Is that really such a bad trade-off? Because, look, God knows the difference either way. Don't fool yourself for a second that he doesn't know your heart. So if you gave the money to get points with God, he was like, you probably just lost five points. Clearly, God doesn't work on a point system. You get the you get the the meaning though, right? God is in your heart. There's no separation. You're not fooling this. We don't even know if God is an entity for Christ's sake. That's how 
kind of ridiculous as a creature we are. So you see that the issue there, is it, is it moral? I'm not sure, but, um, there's an element to this, you know, even if you want to practice dumpster diving that you'll have to get over, uh, you know, a kind of humility. Um, the easiest way, in my opinion, is to go to, you want to, you want to stake out, uh, a large chain, you know, something like Safeway is pretty prime. LaFond might be, well, I'm sure he's undoubtedly the, the greatest guy to talk about this sort of stuff with. He'll know the times, he'll know dates of the month, of, of the best times to get the best yogurt, etc. Not that he's a dumpster diver, he worked at, which he may be, I don't know, but I mean, he worked at grocery stores for 25 or so years as a manager. The dude knows the business inside and out. In Portland, this was, again, it, it hadn't breached the, that, that glass ceiling of, um, you know, quasi-respectability or at least uh, tawdry, you know, interest such that it was, you know, you'd never find the, uh, your, your true, you know, hipster techie nomad or something dumpster diving but you absolutely found a you know there's whole subsets of what people think of as hipsters you know there's your crust bums there's your emo people there's your straight edge there's your punky types there's your midwestern sort of bland just general hipsters i think that's like who makes up most of what you think of as hipsters you have your upper crust hipster. You have your genuinely wealthy hipster. Um, so it, it still falls into this kind of index of, you know, types and levels of consumerism. It's undoubtedly a modern consumerist sort of phenomena, the hipster. Anyway... Clock yourself out a large grocery store. We have like Thriftway and Safeway out here. You know, out east, what you have, Kroger. Um, I've seen some Sprouts out there, I think. Sprouts would probably be a good one because they're pretty good size. And so they're regularly turning these things over. A lot of times they'll have deals, I believe, with like, um, which is another angle on this whole thing. They'll have deals with food banks. So if you want to spare yourself the potential of getting some fetid, rotten yogurt or, uh, you know, fruit and shit all over your clothes, um, and you're a little bashful on the, the whole premise of it, you can start out by going to a food bank. A food bank is like a non nonprofit sort of. It's usually just a small, very small, like retail space. Looks like a warehouse, and all the canned food that's just expired, still entirely edible. 
uh, and the box sort of processed foods will be there. Sometimes I think you'll find fruit. It just depends. You know, it's like the second grocery store. It, the food gets cycled out of the grocery store over to a place like this. It gets picked up by... Um, you know, you're working poor, basically. Um, and if you were going to do this, you know, rural again would be, there's, there's some place probably in most rural areas that, um, satisfies this need, but I would try it in a city because the anonymous, the anonymous aspect of, of cities is to your advantage in many regards. If you leverage it right. If you go there looking for friends, you're a fool. If you go there looking to, to practice being a criminal of purpose, you're well on your way because cheating is of the essence. And, uh, but you can't cheat me and you can't cheat yourself, right, in practice. So back to the dumpster, you know, um, from my experience, if you find the right place, you can eventually talk to the people, and you know, working, smoking cigarettes outside. They'll just tell you when. They'll just tell you, yeah, three o'clock. I'm gonna be bringing out a whole, a whole ton of um, organic kefir and papaya, and a bunch of bags of salami that are perfectly good. And there you go. And you just grab it and walk away and don't even have to get in the dumpster or, you know, come in at two in the morning or any of this sort of stuff. If you do, if you ever did find yourself in a situation where, you know, you, ha you, you need to find food or you're not, you're not going to live. Well, hopefully you've gotten over the humility part. Hopefully you've gotten over the cheating part. And um, the part you're, you're most likely going to deal with then is competition. So back to the kind of social engineering aspect of it, that's, that's a big goal I would, I would suggest. If you choose to take up this exercise, making pals by bumming or offering a cigarette, um, a cold one, what have you, just a few friendly words to whoever you can run into out back or even inside. Um, try that angle, you know, and if it doesn't work and they're going to kick you out, plug the next store into your GPS, go try it again. Try the one that, that you didn't try the first time. Don't cause anybody any hassles. You know, that's part of the game. But see if you can't simply ask for what you need first. If you look like a bum and you act like a bum and you treat people like, a, like they're bums or you're a, a fucking retard, you're going to get what's coming. And you're always going to be subject to this element of competition and... The principle of avoidance, in my opinion, um, far outweighs, you know, your your perceived level of confidence in 
virtually any given potential or actualized conflict. It doesn't mean don't be prepared to do what you have to do. Um, you know, if you find yourself in the worst situation and you've got some kids to feed and you're down there staking out the thrift way and you see two blue-haired turds, you know, crawling out of the dumpster with the primo salami and, uh, you know, the pouches of baby food, that shit's coming with me. And those two guys are going to be waiting there. And that would be, you know, a whole other discussion. But, of course, that's part of the discussion as well. And uh, maybe that's where we'll pick up in hour two. I want to thank you for listening. I will direct you again, non-subscribers, to Patreon where you can subscribe. Also, the website is uh, goldengoatguild.net. If you are not aware, I am the author of a novel called King of Dogs, which you can you can find reviews, an excerpt, places to buy, various coffee uh, copies on the website. Instagram is the main place, the base of operations for all the social stuff. It is Golden Goat Guild. That's the handle there. And I believe that's it. Thanks for your attention. Um, subscribers, as I said, I'll be right back with you.